BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Knowing Robin Williams from Macmillan Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. This week, Dave sat down with comedian Chris Gethard to talk about working in comedy and battling depression. Chris became a poster boy for mental health awareness after his HBO comedy special called Career Suicide came out in 2017. He's also the host of a podcast called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. He shares with us his own story about the time he performed with Robin Williams. It's a pleasure to hear in such a revealing portrait of Robin. Take a listen. Chris, thanks for coming in this afternoon. Why don't you begin just by introducing yourself and uh, telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Chris Gethard, and I'm a comedian. And I, I would say that's the broad umbrella, but it, it, that's taken on a few forms over the years. Uh, I was the host of a very strange talk show for a long time, and I had an HBO special about depression and... I have a podcast where I talk to people on the phone, so I do a lot of stand-up, and I'm a regular comedian too, but I've also dabbled with a lot of the sort of like fringier, more odd stuff over the years. And I came up at a theater called the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is where I met Robin Williams. We'll talk more about that experience, which just sounds uh, incredible and amazing for any comedian to have had. But tell me just about, as you were growing up, how comedy came on your radar what made you think you might do it someday, and who were the kinds of people that you wanted to perhaps emulate as you did it? Well, my family is very funny, especially my mom's side of the family. They're all Irish-American. My grandparents are off the boat. And I I realized really young that my aunts and, and uncle and my cousins, whenever that side of the family got together, they'd always tell stories. And uh, they were extremely funny and we'd all be like crying laughing gathered around the kitchen table and then you know when you went and sat and actually thought about the content of the stories later that night when you're on your own you'd be like oh that's some dark stuff those are actually stories of an immigrant family's tough times like that's what that was so very early I think this this style I, I've become known I think a little bit for like plunge into some dark stuff and find the humor within it that was just from there as far as the comedians I loved I was born in 1980 so David Letterman was a huge influence. I mean, his first book of top 10 lists was like my Bible. And, you know, it's a name that you don't love saying anymore. But Bill Cosby, as far as a kid born in 19, as far as like a storytelling comedian, clearly I grew up on his records. My parents were big fans of his too. And Andy Kaufman was a guy who I discovered when I was in probably like eighth, ninth grade. And just that level of troublemaking right. was something I always enjoyed growing up in the Northeast. Howard Stern was always a big influence, for better or for worse. Yeah. I argue for better, ultimately. But, <laughs> uh, you know, just sort of like, I think I always think of that as like Letterman, Kaufman, Stern. And then, you know, grew up with the sort of like Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler era of SNL. So just sort of that 
New York-centric stuff being in that media market. When did you start trying to perform on your own and what kind of material did you start off by doing? Well, my brother was always a class clown, so I saw the power of being funny very early. I always tried to emulate that. And when I was in eighth grade, uh, a couple friends of mine convinced me to try out for the school play purely so we could hang out. And it was uh, Bye Bye Birdie, which if you know it, it's a musical where it's basically Elvis. It's this guy named Conrad Birdie. He's basically Elvis. He shows up in a small town and everybody flips out. And the kid, I was just like playing a very minor part. And the kid who played Conrad Birdie, he dropped out last minute with like a few weeks left. And I had the show memorized because I was a nerd. So the director, it was like, we're either going to cancel the show or you're going to be... Conrad Birdie and I was tiny I was the smallest kid in the 8th grade class I had a bowl haircut I was like a foot shorter than every girl in the play and they all had to pretend that I was like this sexual icon <laughs> and I remember understanding in my bones that it was funny and when I did the show I'm not you know it was an 8th grade musical I'm not going to claim it was some tour de force but I remember people laughing so hard when I came out and I remember understanding like right I get it like I look like this people shouldn't be fainting with sort of sexual <laughs> desire. It's probably already an inappropriate play for an eighth grader <laughs> to be a part of. And I just remember as the curtain closed on the first night and I was just like jumping up and down. And, and that that was kind of when I knew, oh, I want to be funny in front of people as often as I can. I, I sort of got thrown into the deep end with this ridiculous situation and it lit a fire in a big way. It's kind of a good metaphor for a showbiz career, not not only yours, but in general. If you're if you show up and you're prepared and you're ready for anything. Yeah, very often, very often the uh, the cool kid will drop out, and then <laughs> you're the one standing there ready to go. Which, as you know, my right. fir- my first sitcom job, same thing. A star <laughs> dropped out, and then I got thrown into the deep end yet again to once again be laughed at by the world. <laughs> Not for the best reasons in they, that case, but that's They okay. should have made more use of the Bye Bye Birdie material and uh, would have been ready for it. Yeah, if only they knew. Yeah. If only they knew. But yeah, I just knew then. And then in high school, I had a teacher who I'm, I'm really grateful for who kind of realized that I was a little bit of like directionless weirdo but she thought I was funny and she she told me to take her drama class and I I almost shrugged it off and she was like nope just trust me I'll make it worth your while and she just did improv the whole time that was back in like 1997 before improv was really a uh, cultural thing so I was an early adopter an early devotee to uh, improv comedy was Robin Williams somebody who I mean imagine he must have been on your cultural radar in some form or another he was certainly unmissable in those years would you say though he was somebody you were genuinely a fan of 100% I thought he was one of the funniest people you know we had you know we grew up with a you know first of all his talk show appearances and and he was inescapable with that like being again being born in 1980 like there were reruns of happy days on every night so sure. mork to me was like a legit it's so funny that would never get made today yeah. couldn't be mork today but i remember thinking it was the funniest thing in the world and i have a very very fond memory of my best friend he got a vhs tape and he's like dude i got the new robin williams movie you got to come over we went in his basement. We were so psyched to watch the hilarious new Robin Williams movie. And he had gotten Good Morning Vietnam. Wow. And we were like, what? <laughs> must have been like nine or ten years old. We were like, what is, what is this sobering look at yeah. America's 
America's responsibility <laughs> yeah. in a post-World War II military industrial society. Yeah. That needs a lot of context that a nine-year-old might not be able to supply. On yeah, yeah, it was really, it was really, uh, <laughs> it was really like a splash of cold water right yeah. to the face. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, just in the course of writing and talking about my book, I think people maybe forgot that there were periods. It seemed like Robin's career had these ebbs and flows where sometimes people were really excited about him and then sometimes people just didn't want to hear from him at all. Like a movie would get panned and they'd be like, this guy needs to take a step back for a minute. And then the next movie would come out and it would be, you know, just lovingly received and people would be like, I'm so glad to have Robin Williams back in my life. Where did he go? And it's like, you just told him two movies ago to go away. Yeah. I don't know if you experienced that as a fan, if you saw that uh, dynamic at work. Well, I I remember the first time I sensed that, I forget exactly what year Mrs. Doubtfire came back. And that would have been 93. 93. So that was when I was 13, 14. So that was my first time with the cycle of, oh, he was that funny guy from when I was a kid. And now all of a sudden, everyone's on board, funniest human being on earth. How could you ever go wrong with Robin Williams? And uh, for what is now, I think, a deeply concerning movie, if you think about the actual premise of that movie, (laughs) deeply concerning by modern standards. Uh, Man, who would evade the law by dressing up as a woman and hiding in his own family's house. That's a horror movie by 2019 standards. But you have to give it poetic license. You have to go with the premise or there is no yes, movie. But, but I, certainly I a comedic tour de force on yeah. his part. And that, that was the first time. I, I was old enough to have kind of seen him go away and to see the pendulum swing back really hard. And then yeah. I think uh, I think for me then that next one was his dramatic stuff, right? When it was like Goodwill Hunting and Awakenings and those things. So it was always always something I watched with fascination for sure. Yeah. Would you say he was an influence on you as a comedian? It's tough to say. I mean, I think that the broad answer is it's probably fair to say that he was an influence on anyone who pursued improv. Yeah. Um, you look at his stand-up specials and... I still I remember the one if I remember right where he like climbs through the house to get on stage and he's yeah. stepping over people's seats and yeah it, live of the Roxy he and it that, takes yeah. up a pretty big chunk of time with him just yeah. like messing with people with physical bits and stopping and talking with people and you know he trained with Del Close um, who obviously founded a lot of the improv that's you know certainly the theater I'm from is a direct descendant of Del Close's work so um, this idea that you could have like a loose manic style something that I was very attracted to. And, it's, and, you know, the sad part is as someone who shares some manic depression issues, it was also a side of myself that I recognized. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone who's ever seen me on stage has been particularly uh, blown away by my stage energy. But I think especially maybe some of the people who know the Chris Gethard show would say this idea of creating chaos on stage and just handling it and seeing what happens and finding human moments within it, I think... A lot of it. I mean, certainly out of his generation, I wasn't getting that from Billy Crystal or Whoopi Goldberg. You know, that was that was from Robin Williams. Yeah. You know, that was Robin Williams, and then it was SNL and Martin Short and SCTV guys. Those were the more chaotic ones. For yeah, sure. yeah. It's a it's a tricky thing because in in some ways, what he did was so specific and so sort of sui generis that if somebody else came in and did anything that was sort of too similar to that. 
that person would just kind of get pegged as an imitator. Nobody would say, oh, that person is following in Robin's footsteps. They'd just say, he's ripping him off. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just looking at it from a historical perspective, he's one of one of a certain class of people that you can't argue was an original, you know? Um, And I I know he's always pointed towards Jonathan Winters, I I believe, but even even comparing those two, like Robin Williams clearly put his own stamp on the game, so to speak, and there's not too many people who can claim that. He's one of them. How did it happen that through your experiences at UCB that you got to meet and perform with Robin. How did that come about? Well, the honest truth is he just showed up one night. (laughs) Uh, This happened a few times in UCB. In L.A. it happened, you know, when the L.A. theater opened, it's kind of thing we all started hearing about, that he was dropping in there. And then uh, I was a part of a show that is still going. It's on Sunday nights. It's called ASCAP. It's the longest-running uh, improv show at UCB, probably the longest-running improv show in New York, I think. And, um, you know, its whole history, it was known it was known for having a lot of the higher-caliber people in the New York comedy world come by. So when I started doing that show, I was always in over my head, you know? The, the cast would be Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers and Jason Sudeikis and Jack McBrayer and the entire writing staff from Conan and Jason Manzukis and me. And it was just like I was the low man on the totem pole. So it's always been a show that had some star power. It's always been a show where people can drop in. And I was in the green room one night. I think this was at the point where I was already organizing the show, if I remember. And he just kind of quietly appeared. So no kind of heads up or a call in advance from somebody associated with him like hey robin's coming by tonight or he might stop by on this set of dates nothing nothing like that i don't remember that my recollection might be wrong you know i might just be legend building in my mind but i remember being very very shocked to look up and see robin williams standing there if we had noticed it it wasn't more than a few minutes you know it wasn't more than an intern running back and going uh, guys, Robin Williams at the box office is at the box office. You know, so he came back, and I'll never forget. He was with someone, and they were standing there, and I remember instantly realizing that he was so shy and so humble because he kind of was just looking at the floor, and we all sort of jumped up like, "Oh my God, hi, how are you?" And he uh, he was just very quietly, just like you know, um, if it's not, you know, if, if it's not too much trouble, I'd love to. If you guys would have me, I'd, I'd, I'd jump in tonight. And we were all like, yes, of course, of course, of course. So who knows? I could be remembering it in the way that makes it as magical as possible. <laughs> but I remember him just standing there. I remember just a very shy, short man yeah. <laughs> standing there with a humble look on his face, kind of bashfully looking at the floor. That was the first time I ever met him. Right. And was he just integrated directly into the show? Was there any kind of uh, preparation that you had to give him, any kind of sort of like pre-ritual you had to walk him through? Well, you know, one of the good things about that show is that it was really built for anyone to drop in. You know, it, it was the, the amount of celebrities that were a part of it on a rotating basis meant it was built to be loose, which was nice because um, then people could just come by as their schedule allowed. So we really just told them, you know, it starts with the suggestion and then somebody gives a monologue and then we start doing scenes. And he might have been aware of that from Los Angeles. I don't know if he had done the Los Angeles version of the show yet, 
Um, but we didn't have to explain much. It was just somebody tells a story and then we go. Yeah. He certainly had his own uh, training in improv even before oh. his uh, stand-up days. So it wouldn't have been uh, a completely foreign thing to him. But, yeah. Yeah. To, to still just to, to kind of jump into it with a group that you don't know and have never worked with before, that's uh, you know that's a little bit tricky regardless of who Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the fun things about my time in the improv scene um, which, you know, now now there's all these issues with it, but it was a very pure thing for a very long time. Yeah. And one of the fun things is you can meet a, you meet someone who trained in Chicago or trained under certain teachers in certain cities, and and you know that at the very least... It's, it's going to be like Portuguese and Spanish, right? Like, you can understand <laughs> a lot of the shared words. And I w- I'm, I'm very, very nerdy about history. And anytime I participate in something, I, I really dive in deep to the history, and I knew... Uh, you know, he was on the committee or he trained with the committee. I don't know if he was a full-fledged cast member, but it's like, well, he d- learned more directly from Del Close than I did. So <laughs> I'm sure he can hang with little old me. <laughs> was there, you know, as one of the performers who's in this show with him and you have no expectation that this is going to happen, did that make you more energized? Like, I want to give the best performance I can possibly give. Did that make you more nervous? Like, I cannot mess up if I'm on stage with Robin Williams. That's going to be the worst thing I could do ever. No, I was happy to mess up. <laughs> if I messed up in front of Robin Williams, it would have meant that I was comfortable. Yeah. If I got nervous, I would have just stood there in silence. I'll tell you, the honest answer is I had, I was very lucky for many years that I hosted ASCAT. And generally, it would be two people. And um, the greatest joy in that was when when there was somebody notable and you knew they were in the green room and you knew the audience had no idea and you get to bring that person out last, it was always very thrilling. And that happened so many times with ASCAT. And I, I, I for the life of me, don't remember if I was hosting that night. Um, I don't think I was. But I just knew, you know, standing backstage, I just had a <laughs> grin on my face because... I just knew they're going to hear that it's Robin Williams and, and I know what's going to happen in this room. And that old UCB theater on 26th Street and 8th Avenue, yeah. it, was un, it was literally underground. And when, when the energy got going amongst the crowd, it filled up that space and it just sort of like rumbled. Yeah. And when they brought out Robin Williams, it, it, was, it was rocking in there in a way that I have not experienced too many times. Yeah. It was a very, very extended and appreciative uh, flip out by the audience. <laughs> did, it, it was cool. Did you see him transform in any way in the sense that you talked about when you first were introduced to him and you saw him in this sort of backstage context and you saw something that a lot of people saw in him when he wasn't in a performance mode, which was a much quieter, shyer, more introverted yeah. or inward person. Did you see the switch flip in some way when he went out there and was getting all the energy from that crowd. It was wild. I feel like for a guy who only spent a few hours with Robin Williams, <laughs> I saw all the different sides that people talk about. Um, I mean, that energy hit and you could just feel it, it almost like you could almost feel him like drinking it in and powering up like a video game character. Yeah. Like you, you could feel, okay, it's go time. This crowd's here and they're flipping out and, you could just feel he wanted to make him happy, and he. It was. It was just. It's. It's funny. And I've talked to other people 
who have improvised with him. People were there that night. There was another night where I saw him drop by. And, you know, when you're improvising, there's certain sort of, uh, I wouldn't say rules, but sort certain maybe like, certain maybe code of honor that you're all going to, here's how we're all going to play yeah. nice with each other. Yeah, there's a group uh, shared Yeah, there's, there's there's certain things that you do and you don't do to help each other out, yeah. look out for each other. And I can tell you so honestly that there have been times where other performers have dropped by and they have broken those rules. Right. And it creates a lot of eye rolling and, pardon my French, shit talk. And Robin Williams broke every rule. <laughs> every rule. But I promise you, it was like nothing except glee and joy that we got to be there. Because it was all born out of the fact like he was steamrolling everybody he was walking into scenes and taking all the focus. All this stuff that people might get a little, um, have their feathers ruffled by. Yeah. And he would do it, but it was filled with just, it was just so clear. This guy needs every person in this room to have a good time, and he's not going to stop until he's sure that they do. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was a joy. It was a joy. Yeah. It was a joy. There were a few moments throughout the night that I'll never forget that weren't like one was for one of the suggestions someone yelled flubber mm-hmm. which I think had maybe just come out a few years prior and, yeah and, that was his remake of uh, the absent-minded professor right and it, it was not well received no. and this person thought they were being cute yelling that and the whole cr- crowd kind of uh, got quiet and a few people hissed because they were disrespecting someone right uh who meant a lot to a lot of us. And I forget exactly what he said, but he immediately, it was just kind of all peripheral vision towards him <laughs> in the whole room. And he just kind of said something along the lines of like, oh, all these, uh, all these young hip cats giving me the business tonight, you know? And it was just immediately an explosion of him recognizing, yeah, yeah, you're in the cool kids room right yeah. now. This is, this is UCB circle, whatever year that was. Yeah, this is where all the hipsters are. So you're the flubber guy. And he knew it and he knew it and he owned it and he got right. a big cheer and a big laugh by graciously swatting it away. Right. I also remember two distinct things that I think are worth bringing up. One, uh, when we went back to the green room after his first chunk of doing the show, um, there was a cooler and the cooler was full of beer for the performers. And I remember he was kind of standing quietly in the room, once again very shy. And I think he got this, he had picked up that I helped run the show a little bit. And he just kind of looked to me and he went, you guys don't make it easy for a guy, do you? And I just quietly dragged the cooler out into uh-huh. the hallway and told everybody, hey, maybe if you need to grab a drink, yeah. let's do it out there. Because whatever phase of life he was in, he didn't love standing next to a big giant cooler of free alcohol. Yeah, that's very interesting. And then I remember... If I remember right, he had planned on doing just the first show, the 7.30 show. And when the 9.30 show came around, the person he had been there with that night came back to the green room, presumably so they could collect their things and leave. And he was like, I got to do it. I, gotta, I can't not do this next one. You got to let me do this next one. Come on, I got to do it. It was impossible. There's no way he's not doing that second show. Yeah, yeah, so I saw the addict side. I saw the adrenaline side. I saw the shy side. And I certainly saw the uh, the magical performer side because... I'm telling you, not blowing smoke. I'm not the funniest guy in the world. I've never claimed to have been, but I, I've been on stage with a lot of the funniest people in the world. And uh, not, many, not many people could just mow down an audience machine gun style like he did that night. 
it was like it was like trying it wasn't it was one of those things where it was so fun but it was not easy it was like trying to do improv with the tasmanian devil yeah. it was not you couldn't <laughs> nothing you said was getting through it was just this constant whirlwind of activity and words but it was so full of joy and there's other the funny part is there's a <laughs> feel free to use this or not but there's another comedian from sort of his exact generation who would also drop by mm-hmm. Um, who was not well received because <laughs> he was not a giving performer I see. and he was not a kind person and it was the exact inverse you know there was yeah. certainly some fear some sometimes i think maybe some of the some comedians from an older generation would drop by that show to try to maybe reclaim some sort of yeah some cred yeah and you want to be able to show that you still have it or that you know you can hang with yeah the people who are yeah. uh, the you know the, the 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 class younger than you somehow. yeah and and robin williams came in with total humility yeah. bashfully asked if he could be included and i remember too he he knew like when we would get back to the green room, he'd be like, i'm sorry i didn't let you get i didn't let you get your, I, I didn't let you finish your sentence and i'm sorry but it's just and we were all like no dude go like this is amazing <laughs> like he was so classy about it Everyone knows I'm talking about Chevy Chase as the other guy. <laughs> Every single person listening to this knows I'm referring to Chevy Chase as the other guy. But I couldn't possibly imagine what I'm you're talking sh- I'm about. I'm sure. No idea. Really? You haven't caught wind of those rumors? <laughs> what was it like, I mean, just physically having to let go of him that night that at some point he's got to sort of walk out into the evening and go back to his life? Uh, were there people that wanted him to you know, stick around, tell us uh, war stories? Or there's even a... Uh, thing that happens with people, people just get around celebrities and they want to go on that ride with them, whatever it is. It's hard to kind of, you know, cut that cord. Were you, people able to sort of make peace with that when his night was over? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there were two aspects to this. One, anybody who was invited to do ASCAT on a regular basis had figured out how to kind of put their head down and not celebrity worship. Because if you're going to do that, then... You know, Amy Poehler was there every week. Like, sure. you can't have the, you know. So people, I think people were accustomed to this needs to be a place where people can just hang out. Right. Can you be like, here, here's my packet. Can you get it? Yeah. Like, there were times where, like, Alec Baldwin would be there or Brian Williams would be. Yeah. And you're just like, if you can't learn to just maybe stay, let your starstruck be quiet, stay out of the way. Right. But I think even more on that night, can't speak for anybody else, but the sense I got was that we were all very instantly aware of he's a very gentle guy yeah. and he doesn't need us bothering him yeah. he he he's he's here cuz he wants to play you know and that's that's what in the improv world that's what you call it you know you drop it on a show can i play tonight but with him it was very real it was very real of he had an itch that he needed to scratch it involved pleasing an audience and he was doing it and and i think i think that we all maybe uh there were some elements to being around him that were almost, I almost might say a little bit like a, a little bit of like a To Kill a Mockingbird attitude, you know, of like, let's not bother. This. Like, we can all sense that this guy doesn't need that. Yeah. He gave us something by coming here. He gave this audience something. He gave us something by allowing us to be on stage with him and by, you know, be, being so humble about it. So, yeah. I don't know how many more times it happened for you or for your colleagues, but I imagine you all thought, like, this is a thing that will probably continue to happen for many years to come, that there will be many more 
Robin Williams drop-ins, and each will have its own sort of legend associated. Yeah, I mean, you heard about it in the L.A. theater. You heard that he was going by on, like, a semi-regular basis. I don't know if you've talked with anyone from that theater, but... I remember hearing when I remember when the LA theater started, and all of us New Yorkers were like, "Well, this is still we. This is like the temple of it." And then you start hearing like, "Robin Williams is there like twice a month." And you're like, "Oh, I should move to LA. That sounds fun." That sounds fun. And then I think I forget. I think I only performed with him once. There may have been a second time, yeah. But I feel like I remembered it. But I, I I do know there was one night where he actually contacted the theater because. He wanted to do a Harold. Oh, wow. Which is... Uh, yeah, explain what the difference with that kind of uh, format is. So ASCAT, the show I did with Robin, very, very loose. And if things got messed up, that was part of the joy. And there'd be people drinking on stage. And you'd see very high-level people kind of intentionally doing bad improv. <laughs> like, for fun. Right. But, you know... In New York, if anybody was a fan of that era of Ask like Horatio Sands, brilliant, brilliant guy to be on stage with, yeah. a very, very good friend of mine, but like certainly not someone who followed the rules. <laughs> so when you want to think about the rules, um, there's this thing called the Herald, which is basically most of the uh, most of the improv schools in the country teach this um, improv Olympic, now known as I.O. in Chicago and UCB, I think really teach it as their entire core which is a very structured style of improv um, where all the rules come into play. And I think the idea is that it's actually very tough to pull one off, so they teach you that, so that you're really drilling the thing that's most difficult and therefore everything else feels easier on stage as you kind of, you know, earn your stripes and move on to a veteran status. Everything else feels a lot easier because it's it's pretty structured and there's... Uh, certain things that you have to hit along the way and I watched him perform a Harold. My ex-girlfriend was on the team with him that night. And the really funny thing was that they were not the most veteran team that went up that night. I remember once seeing Mike Myers come in and sit in on Harold. He had also trained with Del Close back in Chicago and he's this was when I was a student and he sat in with the highest level team playing that night. And I still remember moments from that show. Watching Mike Myers do a Harold, brilliant. But watching Robin Williams do a Harold totally different thing because he picked some of the young bucks on purpose and uh, he's not someone built to follow structure or rules but I found that very very eye opening I found it very eye opening because I thought it was kind of a a nice reminder that nobody's really getting into comedy to play by the rules you know (laughs) it's not what it's about and seeing people who have earned the right to break those rules do it in a way that's really driven by a sense of of fun and positivity and not because they need to grab the moment for their own ego or because they can't handle someone else getting a laugh, someone who just can't pay any attention to the structure because there's seven other tangents to follow right now, so screw it, let's go. It was really joyous. It was really a pleasure. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know, you can't have a conversation about Robin Williams, unfortunately, without it taking a turn at some point, and I guess this is where we have to take that turn. But, of course, we all have our own experiences around just learning about his death. Everybody uh, was touched by it in some way. Because you had even these couple of experiences with him and you had worked with him, although briefly, in these very kind of intimate situations, do you have your own recollection about learning about it? Did it, did it affect you in a different way, do you think, because of that? I remember very much so. I was meeting with a bunch of the writers and collaborators on my TV show. I think we were still on public access then. I forget if we had switched to cable. But we were all in a restaurant in the West Village in that like Sullivan, Thompson, McDougal Street area. I forget exactly where. And my friend Noah looked down at his phone and was just like, oh, shit. We are all like, what? And he's like, Robin Williams just died. And we all just got really quiet, kind of finished up. And then I had a stand-up set that night, but I had a few hours to kill. And I just went and sat in a diner by myself. I didn't, obviously didn't know him well, um, but it did affect me. I think as a fan and as a kid of the 80s and as somebody who really got to, you know, that's one of those ones where you get to call your mom Monday morning. Yeah. Call up my mom, hey, ma. Did a show with Robin Williams last night. That's one of those ones where, like, yeah. your parents are a little less scared that you became an artist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your parents are like, "Oh, maybe you can pay your rent. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can. You get to brag of it." You yeah, know, it's really legitimizing. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's one of those ones that, like, and then you realize, like, <laughs> then I realize, like, my mom emailed all my aunts and uncles. Like, the next time I see them, they're like, "Look, oh, you met Robin. Heard you know Robin Williams." I'm like, "I don't know him." Yeah. Anyway. Can we just get back to talking about uh, local New Jersey politics or whatever you guys want to rant about at this Thanksgiving? Um, but yeah, it really did affect me. It affected me as as a fan and somebody who uh, kind of grew up in an era where he was a really big deal and then got to see what a kind person he was up close. It was it was not a it was it was very confusing yeah. and hard. And and then I'll also say too on the on the other end of it as somebody who. Um, as some as somebody who has a lot of depression issues, that was another thing where I think uh, even before it was announced, just had a feeling in my gut that it was suicide, you know. And and uh, I think everybody when they heard it before they even heard what it was was just kind of like ah, you know, you hate to phrase it this way because it sounds callous, but just kind of like. Uh, I'd finally got him. You know, how sad, how sad to see somebody who made everybody else that happy. And then you kind of knew that he could not totally find it in himself. Yeah. I don't know how much you'll uh, remember about this or, you know, if it still stays with you, but there was maybe a week or so where following his death, there was so much conversation about dealing with mental illness, dealing with depression, in comedy, in the arts, in the wider world. 
if you're experiencing it yourself, how you might extend yourself, if you think you know somebody, how you can reach out to those people. And maybe that was a, a, a constructive conversation to sort of have in the, in the abstract, but we would learn more details about Robin's death many months later and the circumstances of it and the specifics that what he was experiencing went beyond depression. Right. And it right. was essentially, uh, you know, it was Lewy body dementia and it was something that he, it, it doesn't quite fall into the category of, uh, yes, it is a brain disease, but it's not quite in the same uh, range as something like uh, depression where, you know, part of it is, there was a huge part of it that was completely out of control, for, out of his control and was degenerative. Uh, you know, is there, you, you know, is there anything that we can sort of take away uh, from that or, you know, did it problematize the situation in the sense that some people still want to think of Robin and think about his death as sort of what you were talking about, the sort yeah. of, uh, you know, that stereotype of the, the sad clown, uh, you know what I mean? That well, I remember that being – I remember there being a lot of pushback against that in a way that I really – appreciated. I feel like that that to me felt like more than other comedian deaths in the time I've been doing comedy, it felt like one where people were kind of like, oh my God, can we not, let's not, let's not, you know. He was someone who I think was known for having such big ups and downs and that it was public knowledge that he had struggled so much. Yeah. And I think it only felt like a shame. It, it didn't, you know, in my generation, I think one of the other big ones is, you know, Chris Farley. Sure. Who I think maybe in certain circles, has been lionized for being so out of control. And then, obviously, I think many years after his death, you know, the book came out that was like, no, this was actually extraordinarily dark and sad, and everybody yeah. watched it happen beat by beat. But in the, I think in the years right after, it was like, almost in the same way Kurt Cobain, you know, artists get lionized for having problems. And yeah. I do feel like with Robin Williams' death, it was one of the first times I realized where people were like, can we just... Let's just, this is only, this is only sad. Let's not, let's not. And then, like you said, to, to find out there was more to it, um, it was confusing. I think for, I got the, I know for myself and I got the sense of a lot of people, it was confusing of, you know, it's a condition that I think not many people, it's not a thing people have on the tip of their tongues. It's the type of thing that when, when I heard about it, it's like, oh, well, does that, does that cause you to maybe lose your grip or was it something that? the knowledge that he had it fueled his depression further. It was, it was one of those things that I think raised, I think a, a lot of people were just even more thoroughly confused. Well, there is definitely, a, I mean, unfortunately, a kind of a lingering mystery about to what extent, you know, he really was aware of himself and in control of himself when when it happened. And, to you know, there, there are so many sort of competing theories that we won't be able to resolve but I feel like I still speak to speak I speak to people sometimes who still believe that he took his own life because of depression or maybe they know that like a week later it was revealed that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease so people think that he died of or took his life because of Parkinson right and but I feel like the full story or the complete set of information it, it only reached a kind of like a subset of that group that people were so tuned in at the very beginning of the story and then later yeah. on just kind of their attention got pulled elsewhere and so people only know fragments of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the sad thing is I think for a lot of 
you know, everybody knew Robin Williams. And I think for a lot of people who knew who he was, the sad thing is, like, um, we were all kind of hoping it wouldn't end like that. Yeah. You know, like, I think culturally that was probably, no matter what caused it, just the actual idea of him taking those actions is something that I think a lot of people from afar just hope we're really holding out hope that that's not what would have happened because he you know he's one of the only people I think who was even semi-open about that stuff you certainly talk in your own routines in your writing and certainly in in other public settings about your own uh, struggles that you've faced in the past how you have dealt with depression and and you know how you've dealt with all you know, situations in in your own life uh, I mean, how, you know, how do you try to do that, uh, uh, you know, as a comedian? And what, you know, how do you gauge what you think you can put out to an audience in that way? Well, it's it's a really, uh, really tough question to answer. If I'm being honest, I, I sort of um, had a conversation with Mike Berbiglia, who's I think probably known as one of the one of the best people with a storytelling style yeah. of comedy in the modern era and he he and I are really close and we were on the road together and he asked me he was like so this depression stuff's really real with you right and I said yeah and he's like what's the darkest I ever got and we were driving through the midwest uh, in the middle of the night and I told him the there's a story in my show about a yeah. time that I crashed a car on purpose and I had only told a small handful of people in my life that story at that point. And oh, he wow. paused after I was done, and then he burst out laughing and was like, you got to tell that on stage right now. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to. But he, he through conversations with him, it, it really felt like a challenge. And one of the things I realized through that challenge was, you know, if you if if you have something to say that no one else is saying and it has a chance to help some other people, it's pretty selfish to not say it. You know, the only thing you're doing at that point is protecting your own ego, or your own sense of comfort. And I guess I just feel like this is going to sound pretentious, but as an artist, if you're worried about your own sense of comfort, then you're making you're probably making limited art. So I had to put it out there. Yeah. Sometimes I regret it, if I'm really? being honest, because, um, you know, it came out on HBO over two years ago at this point, and and. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that pretty much every day I've gotten at least one message from someone who is really suffering. And uh, and it's actually made me at times pretty closed off and pretty nervous because there's a lot of people with a lot of pain and they have no one to talk about it with and they have no place to put it. And sometimes they will express it to me, which is very flattering and very nice, but I'm not equipped to handle it, and I'm not trained to handle it. And I got my own... Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning. And then when people go, oh, really, your thing meant a lot to me. Let me tell you my own stuff. It's yeah. like, well, I'm so happy it meant something to you, but also this is kind of pulling me further down into the depths. I can't take on other people's pain. And yeah. as we talk about it out loud, I have to wonder if, uh, you know, if he ever felt like he represented that to people and if that ever felt like it 
you know, wouldn't let the wound close. Because yeah. sometimes I, mean, I, I feel that. I saw him in situations where the last stand-up tour that he did, a lot of the material was about his own experience falling off the wagon, relapsing into alcoholism, and then getting sober. So there was a lot of talk about those experiences and the language of uh, sobriety and what he had learned through the 12 steps. And then he would, in the same way, meet people after shows who would want to share their own stories too. And they felt like he was a real sort of avatar for them. And I, I, I think it's impossible that he couldn't have absorbed some of that. And every one of those interactions, you can't help but sort of take a little piece away from that person. You feel like you want to alleviate it for them in some way if you can. And that's a very difficult responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're speaking to stuff publicly that's meant to alleviate other people's pain, as you say, I think that inherently you are taking on a little bit of it. You know, you are kind of absorbing some of it from them. And I know I've experienced that in my life to a degree that's actually at times very much put me on edge and put me, you know, in a bad place for as nice as it is. And I'm, I'm, you know, at best people know me as the guy who was uh, Dwight's friend Trevor on The Office for two episodes, you know? Like, I say that not, you know, self-deprecating, but also to say Robin Williams was Robin Williams. That guy couldn't enter a coffee shop without five people yeah. stopping him and talking to him. It must have been a relentless, like the... The mirror he was holding up to the world must have relentlessly reflected back a lot of dark stuff. Yeah. It had to have. Yeah. Do you feel like you still see his influence out there in any way? As we were talking about before, it's hard to kind of do what he did now without just sort of straight up copying him. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it's funny. He, I don't get the sense that, like, what he did was so... <laughs> like you just watch him physically and it looked exhausting yeah. and there were always a lot of jokes about how would his act have been what it was without a lot of cocaine <laughs> like that was a joke that you always put out there you know you always feel like he made that joke like yeah. <laughs> so I think there's you know you'll certainly see some of the other iconic comedians and you can you can look at people who are coming up and go oh they're trying to be cut from that cloth or they're trying to be cut from that cloth but not many come to mind who are chasing Robin Williams because how can you chase that yeah. it's like trying to emulate a hurricane yeah. you know it's like it's not really a thing it's not really a thing that you can just do you have to just be it that's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams when we come back Robin goes off the rails Special thanks to Chris Gethard and to Dave Itzkoff. Check out Dave's book, Robin, to learn even more. And please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.